Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 36. If you level the playing field for all students, here's what we're going to offer across all of our academic supports, all of our behavioral supports, and our social supports using validated curriculum or data-informed decision-making. And so CI3T takes the work of tiered systems and integrates it into a data-informed decision-making process. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. What's going on, teachers and educators? Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Eric Common. Uh, he's out of Michigan University at Flint, and he's doing some really cool research on three-tiered models of prevention. His specific uh, system is called Comprehensive Integrated Three-Tiered Models. And basically what he's doing is, is they're taking the, uh, this concept of a three-tiered model which is used, he explains, is used all over the place. It's not just an education thing. He said, with our COVID-19 response, like you're, you're seeing this concept of three-tiered models uh, in, in places outside of education. But in terms of education, uh, this idea of a three-tiered model is relatively new, um, you know, only being explored and researched in the last couple decades, which <laughs> for, for education purposes is actually relatively new. Um, but this conversation actually uh, is an expanded conversation on the one that I had with Dr. William Hunter on episode 30. So uh, I would recommend maybe uh, either going to listen to that first or following up after this episode and going and listening to episode 30 because we really dive into um, into the same kind of stuff here, just different systems. So I'm really looking forward to you listening to this conversation. But before we get into it, let me just take a moment to remind you of a few things. <laughs> First is that everything that we talk about on this episode, any uh, links or any resources, they are all found on our show notes page. So go to jabbity.com slash show 36, and that's where uh, you can find everything that we talk about. <laughs> uh, on that page as well, you have uh, there's the opportunity to sign up for our email newsletter. And this right now is just a once a week email that uh, basically is just reminding you that this podcast is, <laughs> is live, uh, but down the road hoping to do some more stuff. So... Um, and the last thing is, you're definitely going to want to go join the Jabadoo Facebook group. Uh, I've made some adjustments here. I'm bringing in some more people. I'm making some more posts in that Facebook group, in that community. Uh, and it's really going to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be bringing in some guests to either showcase uh, some different resources that you can use or uh, do some uh, personalized interviews specifically for the Jabadoo community. So go check that out. You can either go to facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo. Or right there on the show notes page, uh, there's a link uh, for you to hop over and, and join that group. And if you're listening to this episode the day that this episode goes live, tomorrow we are actually doing a live interview with uh, a gentleman from Vivid Learning, which is a really cool software that uh, allows you to basically dissect with 3D modeling. So um, we're going to do a, a showcase of that tomorrow. So uh, make sure you go over to facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo, or like I said, right there on the show notes page, you can find the link jabadoo.com slash show 36. All right, with that now, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Eric Common. 
All right, on today's episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast, my guest is an assistant professor of education at the University of Michigan at Flint. He worked for eight years as a clinician in the San Francisco Bay Area, providing applied behavior analytic services in residential, clinical, and school settings. His scholarship revolves around the active role school plays in a child's development and prevention efforts through the use of tiered interventions and supports, and his publications can be found across multiple journals, and he currently serves on the editorial board of Behavioral Disorders, Journal of Positive Behavior Interventions, and Remedial and Special Education. Dr. Eric Common, welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. How are you? I'm doing good, John. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, any any friend of JT is a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, I think he's linked me up with like four or five guests, uh, probably even more than that. Um, so you know JT, you know Dr. Hunter, who we had on uh, a few episodes back, and I'm sure probably a couple other ones that are scattered throughout there. But um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to to get into this with you. Awesome, because you kind of have like a pyramid scheme going with like the behavioral oriented <laughs> special education researchers where one recommends the other, <laughs> but I think you just recommended it. It's true. I, I, and I think mine's legal. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep it going as long as it keeps bringing me great, great guests. So, um, yeah, so, uh, we're, we're going to get into a couple different things. Um, we talked about, you know, uh, this, uh, this concept of tiered interventions, uh, is, you know, becoming more and more popular and more and more useful across multiple, uh, different areas in schools, uh, between behavior, between, uh, just, uh, educational, um, you know, special education. So we're going to dive into, uh, uh, one that we didn't get a chance to highlight in previous shows, but before we dive into that, uh, I always like to start from your beginning, which is what was your experience as a student coming through, you know, public, was it public education? Was it private education? Uh, what were some teachers who left an imprint on you, uh, good or bad? Both are good lessons. Um, just take us through. Who were you yeah. as a student? Um, so I was publicly educated in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I come from a family of educators. Uh, my mom was a second and third grade teacher at my elementary school. Aunts and cousins and my sisters grew up to become educators. My dad taught community college. So being a student being in education and watching professionals like parents and aunts, cousins, all be educators. It was always a part of my life. Um, but I had no idea I wanted to go into education. I was like two youth classes away from having a teaching certificate in undergrad. I was like, no way, I'm never going to go into it. <laughs> um, but uh, I was a active child in schools, um, but I was probably an internalizing, internalizing student was probably like at risk for anxiety. Um, but I was a um, speech kid at age three. I couldn't say 23, 24 of all English sounds. And there's like 34 of them. Okay. So like I was in intensive speech therapy and hated it and didn't enjoy that aspect of it. Um, and I was a mediocre student. If I liked the subject or the teacher, I would do good. If I, um, sure. Sure. So like by the time I got to high school, like tracking got involved because like I liked my eighth grade social studies teacher. So I was in honors history, but I hated my eighth grade English teacher. And so I was on like the college prep track for that. Um, and I thought I was going to go into hotel management. And I did a um, great books program in undergrad, which... Um, I was debating between two state universities. I'm like, well, this one offers this unique program where I just read 
two or three books a week. I don't get graded and I just read, write and talk. And it's like the Socratic seminar. And that was like a quantum leap for me. And I was like, I love academia. I mm. love learning. I love studying. And um, I partied my first freshman year of college. And by my second year, I was like, yeah, it's easy to party and not get graded and have fun in class. But like, I'm learning some amazing things. I really want to do this. Um, and so by my sophomore year, I knew I was going to become a college professor, but I just didn't know what it was in. Sure. Yeah. So that was my yeah. grade 12 to high school in a nutshell. Yeah. So what was it about, uh, you said, was it, maybe I'm going to reverse these, but English you were, um, you excelled at or, or what, am I reversing that already? Which one um, was it that you, you did good because you liked the teacher? <laughs> um, English in eighth grade, but like, I love English and literature, but I just hated that teacher. And so the subjects would change. Um, in general, I probably had better relationships with my English teachers. Um, and then social um, science teachers were a close second. And then I was good at science and I was really bad at math and foreign language. And like, I probably almost didn't graduate high school because like it was always a question of, am I gonna get enough credits to have the minimum standards needed in math? and foreign language because I think it was like two years each and it was like I had an A-B schedule of okay. pass, pass, fail, pass, fail, pass. Like some classes in math and Spanish took two turns and it was <laughs> frustrating because I didn't. It was, just, it was like it was not motivating. Gotcha. Yeah and I don't I don't think that that's an uncommon uh, situation where you know students come through and they really excel at one subject because that is the subject that they have a great connection with the teacher and they want to go to class and they want to learn. Um, and even subjects where, you know, if, if I was coming through and I had a horrible music teacher at any point, mm. uh, even as a music teacher now myself, and I love music, if, if you had a horrible teacher for it, it would kind of ruin the subject for you. So um, I don't think that's super uncommon <laughs> for, for anybody coming through. Mm. Um, but you graduate, uh, going to college, graduated, and you started working in the San Francisco Bay area, uh, as a applied behavior analyst. Mm -hmm. So what was, what was that? Why, uh, you know, what were some of the responsibilities that you had and what were you trying to figure out? Yeah. So I, an undergrad, I read a book about autism. And at the time I was really interested in medical anthropology. Um, you say you, you read or wrote? Read. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> I was like, you yeah, are very good. Um, <laughs> So I read a book about autism, one of my classes, and I was so fascinated by, I was just so interested in modern disabilities that were like 20th century phenomenon that from the onset they were studied from like the doctors not knowing things. And autism is one of those where like, if you had autism, you may know more about your symptoms and your body than the doctors who yet didn't have a classification. That just blew my mind. Interesting. And so I had a friend who was a few years older than me and they worked at a group home for adults with autism and intellectual disability. And I applied and I was 19 and for insurance reasons, you had to wait until you're 20 to work there. And so like on my 20th birthday, I submitted my application and it was the perfect job for being away college because you're in a home setting, you're cooking or people are cooking for you. Um, we did a lot of community integration, a lot of hiking. It was in Northern California. So there was uh, yeah. redwoods and coasts and organic foods. And it was like, 
much better than like my quality of life in my college dorm <laughs> or my apartment. <laughs> yeah. So I graduate and I had a bachelor's in liberal studies and medical anthropology. And there's not much you could do, but I had all this experience <laughs> working with adults with autism. And I thought I was going to go into psychology or anthropology at the time. And I was like, I'm going to get some experience. I'm going to get mm -hmm. some entry level yeah. psych job and have some street cred because I always have lofty ideas and I am always trying to be relevant. So I was like, if I could just say I did this clinical stuff for a while, I'll be more relevant someday. Um, and I, <laughs> yeah. And I first went to look at some group homes in San Francisco proper now that I've moved back home. And it was much more hospital and sterile. And it felt like a building rather than a group home. And I was like, this is not for me. And my friend had just gotten a job as an ABA therapist where it was children who had just been diagnosed generally around two to three um, with autism or suspected autism or developmental delays. And they weren't ready to go down that path of that, that diagnosis, but they just needed early intervention. And so we would provide 10, 20, 30, 40 hours of intensive intervention divided by behavioral therapist, early childhood teachers, speech therapist, occupational therapist. We had shared goals, we had individual goals, and it was a lot of what's called discrete trial teaching where I'm literally sitting at a small like door of the Explorer plastic table <laughs> doing like simple matching and reinforcing the child's correct responses with the goal that we would scaffold a bunch of these discrete skills into more complex skills. And I did that for a year and I loved it. And it was fun to see behavioral goals at the micro level graft and see change so effectively. And then I went into a more naturalistic clinic that did behavioral therapy, much more multidisciplinary where I would like co-teach a small group or one-to-one -one with a okay. different therapist. Um, we did a lot more services in a non-clinical setting, even if it wasn't a clinic or in a home, it wouldn't be at a table. It would be whatever the kid was doing. It was like okay. being in the home environment in the school. And at first I hated it because I'm like, I'm not seeing the changes fastly because I don't have that dense schedule of reinforcement or that instructional control. I'm just waiting for natural opportunities. Hmm. But when you're playing around in that space, when you teach kids in more authentic settings, those skills last and generalize so much faster. And sure, or not faster, but like if they, as they develop, they, they last longer, they generalize to other skills sure. that are untaught. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not artificial. Right. Yeah. It's, it's this idea that, um, you know, I forget which episode it was in, but we mentioned that in school, we teach in silos, right? You have math class here and you have English class here and you have history class here. And you, then you go to music and you go to art and they're all taught individually, but outside of school, you experience all of that simultaneously. So that mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense when, you know, working with these students and, and doing some of those supports to do it in a much more natural, uh, situation because then it, 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 it's applied immediately for the student, right? Or mm -hmm. for the for the child. Um, so that that kind of makes that makes a lot of sense to me anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I was doing that and I got my certification and I had like a two-year contract. Um, so they would pay for my certification and eventual license to be a behavioral analyst. And at that time I applied to three doc programs in psychology, anthropology, and education. 
And it was a combination of what's the best fit and be- most prestigious school that I could get into sure. and on the doc route. And so I had no idea where I was going, but I knew I wanted to study um, behavioral development. And I knew that ABA worked in these one-on-one settings, but I wasn't seeing them in school settings. And little did I know there's this like whole vast literature of behavior analysis and special education. And at that time, three-tiered systems like PBIS that I knew nothing about. And so that's how I entered this field. There you go. And you uh, went on, you got your PhD. Um, and what is it, what was your PhD actually in? It was in special education, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I started at UNC and it was early childhood special education literacy. And it was essentially a master's so I could get a PhD, but it yep. was like the only education master's level that focused on research and not even teaching. Like I, I just knew gotcha. that, that I was never going to teach. Yeah. And then 10 years go by and I'm on the job market. And it's like, even universities would have liked if I had teaching experience <laughs> or at least a license. Well, yeah. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> exactly. It's almost like they teach at universities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, obviously the, the work that's being done for, um, not only students with disabilities, but uh, students with, uh, you know, behavioral challenges. Um, this idea of tiered supports uh, has gained a lot of momentum and has become, uh, I think, pretty common. Um, but say for, for anybody who hasn't ever heard of a three-tiered system of support, what is that? Um, a three-tiered model is a prevention framework that uses three tiers generally, sometimes there's four or five, six, but in general, it is, what do we do for all? What do we do for some? And what do we do for a few? And so you get that triangle. And it comes from public health and mental health. And once you become aware of this all, some, few, and progress monitoring to identify who's benefiting and who might need more, you'll see three-tiered triangles everywhere. Um, When they're talking about COVID and how to navigate migration between cities and counties and states, one proposal was states would have a three-tiered, counties would have a three-tiered system. And if you're in tier one, you could move. If you're in tier two, you could do adjacent and tier three needs to stay put. Um, Hand washing, like when you go to the bathroom and you see the hand-washing sign. That is an example of a tier one practice to prevent foodborne illnesses. Okay. Um, And a tier two practice might be somebody who was caught not doing it consistently, or if they got a B or a C rating on their um, food license, then you might put in some strategies to support that. Um, So anyways, back to school systems. in the 19, 1996, Hill Walker and others were proposing these ideas of this system is really beneficial. It makes sense to apply to school settings. What do we do for everybody who walks into the building? What do we need to progress monitor to identify who might need additional supports? And then here's how we give it to them. And it entered the law first through special education in 1998. Um, the Individual with Disabilities Education Act of 1996, IDA. maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, whichever the late 90s one was. <laughs> um, positive behavioral supports 
um, functional behavioral assessments for kids with tier three needs kind of laid out the framework for a behavioral model, which became PBIS. And then the next reauthorization in 2004, you developed a similar framework for reading called response to intervention. Mm-hmm. And things now things get tricky because we now have the PBIS framework for behavior. We have the academic framework called response to intervention. But in addition to being a service delivery mod- mo- model, Response intervention was an alternate route to getting identified for having a learning disability. So if you didn't respond to tier one reading instruction, right. you get tier two reading, then tier three. And if that doesn't work, you don't need to go off of the standardized Woodcock-Johnson's and the IQ test. You just go off, you're not responding to evidence-based practices. You identify for special education services. Gotcha. But like we did, like we were still in the infancy of these tiered systems. Um, yeah, I know. Like for for visualization for people who are just listening, uh, you know the the one, two, and three. One is typically your bottom. That's the bottom of this, mm-hmm. this triangle, this pyramid. And that's uh, my understanding is about eighty percent of your kids are going to fall into that for you know on average across the board. And then the top two tiers, uh, tier. My, wait, top the tier two and tier three mm-hmm. are the top two, and that's that's twenty percent as a total, right? So this falls into the eighty twenty rule that you hear a lot about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those top two, the tier two would be about fifteen percent, ten fifteen percent, and then that tier three, you really only should be, you know, it's really only should be about five percent ish of kids are going to fall into that uh, tier three where they need a lot of these additional supports. Um, but that, so that visualization, the 80% on the bottom, mm-hmm. the 15% in like on the middle, and then that top little triangle <laughs> at the very top being 5% being tier three. Um, I, I'm a visual person. I, I love visualization. Exactly, so, yeah. so that really helped me when I saw that for the first time and said, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, so we, we, uh, it, I had, uh, Dr. William Hunter on a previous episode and we talked about RTI, we talked about PBIS, we talked to MT or we talked about MTSS, uh, which kind of pulls it all together and tries to wrap those two into, <laughs> into its uh, own little system. But, uh, the one that you are working with, um, is, is a little bit different. It's got a lot of the same similarities, but uh, it is the Comprehensive Integrated Three-Tiered Model of Prevention. So CI3T, and uh, is it CI3T.org, I think is the website. Mm-hmm. It is packed with resources. I mean, it's like 20 different tabs yeah. that you can go on and you can look up stuff on that. So uh, talk to us about what is CI3T and why, why is that different than uh, the tiers that we just mentioned earlier? Yeah, so CI3T came out of the work of Kathleen Lynn Lane, Holly Menzies, and Wendy Oaks. Um, Kathleen um, Lane, first in Southern California, was studying PBIS, and she was a student of Hill Walker. She proposed integrating these three-tiered uh, models into school systems, and she was interested in reading, she was interested in behavior, and she was interested in social skills, and she was she worked with schools and setting up these PBS systems, which she was like, but we're going to do academics at the same time. We're going to use academic and behavioral data to connect students into grouping. And we're going to teach social skills because if you're they not, need <laughs> they need it. And yeah. society's changed. And like, there's no longer this expectation that 
all the kids are going to church on Sundays and they're learning what it means to be a good Christian or a right. citizen or a moral person. And if you level the playing field for all students, here's what we're going to offer across all of our academic supports, all of our behavioral supports and our social supports using validated curriculum or data-informed decision-making. And so CI3T takes the work of tiered systems and integrates it into a data-informed decision-making process. The middle of our triangle has the behavioral component and we take PBIS as is and we add a data-informed decision-making. If you've ever been to a PBIS school, you'll often see expectation matrices of this is what it looks like to be respectful, to show mindfulness and be a ready to learn. This is what it looks like in the classroom, the hallway. Yep. Rather than having a team of experts or one person decide what the behaviors will be for an entire school, during the training year, we ask all people in the building what do you consider important and critical for student success across these um, settings? Because the behaviors that are most valued are the ones that are going to be reinforced, rewarded, mm -hmm. acknowledged naturally. So you're building that buy-in and connecting through data processes. And then you work with the school system to find out what's the core academic instruction, how many minutes do we need to dedicate to ELA, to math, like What's the minimum standards we're going to do? Right. What's all the data within a building? So we work with schools to develop assessment grids where here's the data we get monthly during benchmarking fall, winter, spring. Here's when we look at and integrate that data. Here's when we consider connecting students to tier two, tier three needs, which are additive. Mm -hmm. Because the whole logic of this prevention model is you're meeting students at tier one, tier two, tier three, at their level of intensity, but you're adding things on top of it. I don't want to offer John an intensive 30 minute reading instruction when I'm taking him out of the 30 minutes of the core instruction. I'd want to find a way <laughs> right. to supplement that. Right. And that gets really tricky in terms of if you've ever been in an elementary admin's office when they're scheduling the master <laughs> yeah. calendar, um, like you have to first identify the non-negotiables and then the cord right. yeah. then the supplemental. And so it's finding these complex systems um, and making them as feasible and socially valid as possible by continuously monitor in addition to what you're looking at building level and grade level. But twice a year, we ask people, what do you think about the primary plan in your building? What do you think about CI3T, um, its procedures for teaching, monitoring, reinforcing? We do um, treatment integrity checks to see our plans in place, and then we look at the outcomes. And that informs the annual builds, it informs professional development. If one area is, um, if students are showing high rates of aggression or conflict on the playground, and you notice it's, oh, it's the third graders, oops, we forgot to teach that lesson of the social skills. <laughs> Let's go back and teach it. Right. And so it finds, it takes everything in a building and puts it into one system. Right. And what I love about it is a lot of our schools say, CI3T is not one more thing. It's our plate. It's like going it's to everything. the Thanksgiving yeah. table and it's having what can touch, what needs to be separate. Like it, it's a framework to organize what you're doing. 
And what what I love about it too is is the uh, the allowance of each school to have their own individual needs met, right? This isn't one uh, rigid system that is just implemented at a school. You get to say, hey, what's the need of our community? What's the academic needs of our students? What's the behavioral needs of our students? What's the social needs of our students? And you get to tweak it a little bit so that it fits your school, right? Mm-hmm. And that, I think that probably plays into, you know, teachers feeling like this isn't one more thing added to our plate. This is our plate, Right, because right. it's it's so personalized for your school. The other cool thing about it is that, like you said, you get all this data out of it. So you it, everything is tracked, and it does create a system. And when you have systems, that's going to prevent not only uh, you know issues from being glazed over or passed over. Everything gets addressed, and every kid gets met too. When you have these systems in place, it prevents students from falling through the cracks. Uh, and to have everything under one system instead of having mm. four or five different systems uh, seems to just make it so much easier for teachers to to get on board, right? Because that's that's another challenge that you face is is everybody, you know, somebody who's been teaching for 25 years and their way works, it's hard to implement something new. Um, so this this just this sounds awesome. Uh, the if teachers, if teachers are interested or hear this and they say, oh my goodness, my school needs a system where everything can be documented, everything can be tracked, nobody's going to get uh, you know, left out, um, what would be, where, where would we send them? Um, the first thing I would do is tell them to kiss their brain because <laughs> most teachers don't hear something new or hear just listening to you, like you just labeled off so many things that I don't consider regular aspects of a teacher's job or regular aspects of teacher's job that they don't have the time to do. Like having that data literacy where not only can you find and access the data, but you know how to interpret it in analysis and that you're given that space to do it or working tiered systems where you're supporting your classroom, but you're working with other people um, to support you offer tier two or tier three in your classroom or in a building. So first, kudos to them for being excited about it. (laughs) Um, And then the second step is to talk to decision leaders in a building. Anytime I approach a um, problem or an issue of an area that I like to grow, I use data to show that conversation rather than, oh, we're so disorganized, we need to do this. Mm. I'm like, here's some data, this shows the need, here's one way to do it. Um, so come from a proactive stance and then look at what your states and your local education agency or districts are doing within tiered systems. Um, every state has some level of tiered system in play. Um, some state departments of education offer technical assistance. Um, Michigan, um, IMTSS is one of those, um, and then if you're interested in learning more about this integrated three-tiered model, our CI3T webpage, ci3t.org, um, of the many pages, one of them is uh, building your CI3T implementation model and one's implementing. And those pages, we divide the resources of what would you need to do to go through a training year of designing this process. And then once you have a system in place, what would you do with your implementation support? And for those who have systems in place, look at some of the tools that we have. 
Um, I love the CI3 team model, but it also has amazing efficiencies that are just good systems for being a classroom teacher or being a data sure. informed teacher or working within a different tiered system. Because all tiered systems have the same goal of responding swiftly when a child has a need. Right. And that's, you know, that's what you want to do as a teacher, right? You, you don't want, you know, these students to, to fall further and further behind. And when you have these systems, like you said, uh, it helps kind of just keep everything in front of you. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, the like I said earlier, the website is, is jam packed. So if, even if your school isn't, you know, uh, doesn't implement the system, you, there's tools there for you to use in your classroom. If you feel like I'm struggling with, you know, tracking this, this section of my academic, you know, classroom. Um, there, there's obviously a bunch of different stuff to look over um, with that. Um, this has been great. Is there anything that uh, we didn't get a chance to cover that you wanted to talk about today uh, before we head out? Um, one thing I would like to emphasize with tiered systems, if I could for a few minutes yeah, is- go for it. Um, we're still in the learning process. We've been doing this since the late 90s, but things are constantly changing and we're turning our head on them. Um, so and like this- Since the late 90s is very, very young in the whole education yeah. world too. So. <laughs> um, we talked about the 75-15-5 and like that's a good rule of thumb. Um, there's no hard evidence that that's what needs to be done. Of course. But the reason that's recommended is from a uh, resource perspective, what we're offering at tier one, and then who needs more, those are good numbers. When I work in high needs schools, we often change the cutoff scores because sure. that's not realistic. It's not and realistic. So exactly. who we offer tier two, so, or if I'm at a school that is just not, not implementing tier one, I'm like, oh, we need to fix tier one before we offer tier two. I don't want to say a child's not responding to tier one because we're not doing it. Then you have right. ethics and come into play. So of then course. it's, of course, you want to think about, well, what students do we want to support? So like that number constantly changes. And I've been recently working increasingly with other integrated MPSS research groups. Um, there's a National Center of Integrated MPSS happening right now. And one of the projects uh, Michael Cohn was talking about, like, if you look at the pass rates of like proficient reading and math, like at grade level, it's rarely those numbers. So like reading is not even using those as much as the behavior and social emotional people are. <laughs> and then, um, so as a teacher, like when you hear these things or like you see them contradicted, I would often become frustrated, like, oh, that's confusing or ambiguous or I'm getting mixed messages. Um, I would just encourage teachers, that's part of the fun of it. Um, I recently read a study where, because, you know, it's a progression. You generally start at tier one, but now we talk about, oh, you go straight to tier three if that's where the need's at. And now in the academic world, they're increasingly talking about if a high school student has a, any reading need, they should go straight to tier two, tier three and receive the most intensive supports because that's their last one, two, three, four years of public education. Gotcha. And they've already had eight years where they haven't responded. So these, anytime you go into a system, there's opportunities for rigidities 
and flexibilities and rules are made to be broken or understood in different contexts. And as educators, we're gonna see a lot of that because I think tiered systems are here to stay, but I don't think we're at a place yet nationally where we all know what our roles will look like sure, and how professional development and how pre-service education will impact that. So I think that's a, that's a fair fair assumption and and fair uh, analysis of uh, you know the current current situation and and what we can expect moving forward. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, you know, if, like you said, if they've only got a year or two left in public education and they're pretty far behind, then and they haven't been identified yet at this point, mm-hmm. you know, that shows issues in the school leading up to it. But at that moment, yeah get them, get them going, get them to tier three. Um, so yeah, obviously, you know, everything, everything is, you gotta, you gotta work with your situation. Right. Um, so if that's your situation, then, then that's what you gotta do. But, um, this is, this has been great. Uh, like I said, thanks, thanks for joining me. Let's move over to our exit ticket questions now. So these are the same four questions that I ask every guest who comes on the podcast. So the first one is, uh, what book recommendation would you suggest teachers go read? Um, so my favorite book, and I bring it up in the opportunity, I can, so I was so happy you had this question. It's called, it's Rational Fan Fiction, and it's called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. <laughs> um, there's a podcast where it's an audio book. You can get it as a free PDF, um, but it's basically six or seven books. It's almost a thousand pages. It's pretty long. Wow. It's um, a whole alternate universe that's reimagined. Um, are you familiar, familiar with Harry oh, yeah. Potter? Oh, I'm yeah. I'm at I, the point where I just assume I, everybody does. <laughs> Everyone our age, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it reimagines Harry being raised by loving Oxford research scientists <laughs> and um, going into Ravenclaw with Hermione and befriending Draco. And the power the Dark Lord knows not is rationality and then scientific testing rather than love and it sounds nerdy and it is it sounds so corny and nerdy but i'm super interested in it it has so much heart um he kind of writes off ron as like a bumbling idiot (laughs) and um he kind of plays up um you don't know if um albus dumbledore is crazy or not and kernis curls like his mentor and um McGonagall's his mentor so like it's new characters in the play yeah and it just has so much heart and it has really complex story arcs but then throughout every chapter you get a little social science or quantum physics or applied behavior analysis embedded in the story in a really surprisingly brilliant way um and it's just so good that's um yeah that's amazing <laughs> i had never heard of that so it's a, it's a podcast and it's a free pdf mm-hmm. so uh we will we will link to both of those uh that's i i can't wait to go <laughs> experience it for myself i'm actually really excited that you shared that thank you <laughs> and for anybody who is unfamiliar with harry potter uh you have nine movies that will tell or eight movies that mm-hmm. will tell you <laughs> go spend a weekend doing it oh man question number two i've uh, what is a resource that you would suggest teachers go uh, play around with? Um, we talked a little bit about our website, ci3t.org. Um, whether you're working within a tiered system or not, I'd really recommend it. 
um, if you're a school that's starting or going to do behavioral screening, which I think Kendra Vaness talked a little, little bit about when she was visiting, um, we have resource guides on that. If you're doing a behavioral intervention plan or need a tier two strategy for social emotional or behavioral skills, we have a lot of strategies that offer overviews, summaries of research and all these implementation supports. And we've been building up um, this past year, a lot of stuff responding to COVID. And whether you're doing online, hybrid or some combination, if you have a social skill or a tiered system in play, how do you connect it to whatever's happening in this constantly changing academic school year? Yeah, wow, a lot, a lot there to digest. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a hub of resources for sure. Uh, question three is: What piece of advice would you give teachers, uh, particularly teachers who are just starting out their careers? Um, so I teach a lot of pre-service elementary and preschool um, educators who are getting their bachelor's and certification at the same time. And none of us go into this for the money. Um, and the statistics, particularly in special education, but in all fields are we get burnout, we leave prof professions. So I had an exit strategy, like I was burnt out by the time I was ending my clinical phase, but I knew that I was going into academia. Um, and I'm watching students go into um, debt to go into education. Like, that's fine. I did it too. Like, it's good. Um, but think how lifelong learning, how different professions um, within education and beyond, and always kind of think it, about that. Um, like as an educator, there's, if you ever get burnt out in the classroom, you become a coach, you could go into admin, you could go into a related service provider, mm -hmm. you could go become a specials teacher, or you could just switch fields. Um, so I, I found that to be a very protective factor in preventing my burnout. Um, and we live in a society where um, we want people to stay in the field or stay distally related, or those who are good, that's fine. Uh, but plan ahead so it's not surprising or heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you said, we want good people to stay, you know, in the positions with working with students directly. But, you know, obviously, you know, if it comes to it and, and you know, it's not the position for you, then, you know, it better better for you to be in a happy position, still working behind the scenes in education than to be unhappy on the front lines, I guess, mm -hmm. is the is the message there, too. So um, I know burnout's not a um, within teacher problem. Like that's yeah. a systems level failure. Um, like if you're working in an at capacity school, there's no amount of mindfulness and breathing <laughs> and like buying lush bath bombs to make you feel good all day at work. Um, so yeah. don't blame yourself, but like be solutions oriented, don't admire the problem and know that you always have options to stay and to be reintegrated or reconnecting or do what's ever right for you. Yeah, a very, very down to earth and realistic uh, piece of advice. I like it. Uh, and then question number four is if anybody has any questions about anything they heard or they just want to reach out to you, where's the best place to send them? Um, yeah, so my um, email or Twitter, um, my university email is, um, I assume you'll have this in a yep, notebook, well, but have it's, it it's yep. <laughs> um, ecommon at umich.edu. I have a web page, I'm common. 
com, and then I'm common. Um, I am C O M M O N is my Twitter handle. Yeah, <laughs> I love professional social media. Yeah, and I, I saw that that was your Twitter handle, and I'm like, that's just so perfect. <laughs> I'm common. I am. Yeah. <laughs> we all are, but I actually am. I love it. Yeah, Dr. Eric Common, thank you so much for joining me today. This was uh, awesome. Thanks. Thanks, John. Have a good day. And there you go. Big thank you again to Dr. Eric Common for taking the time to chat with us today about three-tiered systems and and this comprehensive, integrated three-tiered model of prevention. Um, And if I were to give you one takeaway from this, it would be to go check out their website, ci3t.org. It's got so many resources. I'm, I'm looking at it here right now, and there's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, I think, tabs of stuff for you to check out. They've got iBooks. They've got an introductory video. They've got uh, so many different resources here. So go check it out. Something responding to COVID-19, uh, research panels. I mean, it's, it is just absolutely packed. So uh, if you heard this, and, you, and again, you're thinking, you know, your school could benefit uh, from something like this, go check out this website, ci3t.org. Um, just a, a, a behemoth <laughs> of resources there. So um, as always, thank you so much for being a listener of this show. I would love for you to go check out the show notes, jabadoo.com slash show 36. Sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, you can do that right there on the show notes page. But then again, that Facebook group, really trying to grow the community there, really trying to bring some value in a more personalized way uh, than just this podcast. So go join the Facebook group. We're doing that live uh, walkthrough of that resource tomorrow if you're listening to this when it comes out. Um, but uh, a couple other things that are in there and that are planned uh, in the coming coming weeks and coming months. So uh, go be a part of the Jabadoo community on Facebook. Again, link there on the show notes page or facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo. And that will do it from me. So until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.